kind of routinize that and incorporate it and make that, you know, the thing, not just a thing, sort of, you know. Mm -hmm. All right, so we're recording, and, um, like, obviously, like, you know, I can edit any, like, this is, so I guess maybe if we just start with the introduction, right, is that, and then mm -hmm. you can just kind of get into it, like, you talk a little bit about your background, I think that'll probably just lead you guys down the path of where, where this will go, and, you know, whatever, I, any, I really feel like with your backgrounds, like, anything that comes out is going to be really interesting and productive, so. Yeah. Okay, right. we're okay sitting here? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Yeah. Okay, yeah. great. <laughs> okay, sure. So uh, I'm Brian Farr, and uh, currently I, I train up-and-coming substance abuse counselors at Hudson Valley Community College. I've been a substance abuse counselor for about 20 years, mostly in the Saratoga region, but all around the capital region as well. I served on the Saratoga Springs District School Board uh, for their DASA Committee, Dignity for All Students Act, for two years. Um, but I also um, have somebody in my life who uh, is very special to me and is uh, transgender. We've known this from a young age and um, just have kind of followed that path. It's one of those things as a parent and family member that isn't in the instruction book, so you kind of learn as you go along. So the idea of school safety is extremely important to me, and that's what I'm here for. That's great. That's great. Thank you for that introduction. And I am Tom Andriola. Um, I am a Chief of Policy and Implementation for the Office of Youth Justice at the New York State Division of Criminal Justice Services. Um, I've been working in that capacity uh, for nearly eight years now, um, and really what we're all about is uh, promoting youth success while ensuring uh, uh, public safety uh, across New York State for youth who are involved in the juvenile justice system or, or at risk of becoming involved in the juvenile justice system. Uh, we do try to do a lot of work on the prevention end the root causes for behavioral issues and um, evidence-based uh, responses for when they are um, in trouble. Um, I also have school uh, have um, served on uh, a school board. I, I was on the Mahonison Central School District School Board for six years, um, and I have uh, you know various other experiences in the New York State Assembly and the New York State Division of the Budget as well as a couple of years in the private sector. Um, in addition to that I, I uh, grew up in a fairly chaotic traumatic household and uh, experienced um, uh, childhood sexual abuse and have been coming to terms with that over the past several years and so one of my key focuses is on trauma and how we not only prevent trauma, but how do we address trauma once it has, occur has occurred. Great, yes. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm glad we're here to talk about this today. So um, I guess when I hear you talk and we're here to talk about safety, I think we meet in a number of places with our backgrounds, but you just had me think about how do we prevent trauma or traumatic events. I think that might be, when I was thinking about how do I define safety in schools, I think that has something, 
a big part of it. How do we prevent anything from happening which could be traumatic for students? I mean, your thoughts on the whole safety, what is safety or how? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I think, I think safety uh, in general and behavioral issues really comes down to um, relationships and empathy, bottom line. Right, so how do we build positive, build and foster positive relationships among the students, among the, the adults um, in, in the school settings and really in the community overall? And how do we respond to issues with empathy? You know, when you take a look at um, students in general and adolescents in particular, um, there's a lot of there's a lot of recent science that has come out on adolescent brain development in general, right? So the so the kids are um, more highly emotional. They respond um, based on feeling uh, in most cases, and then when you add trauma on top of that, which is a it's really a huge issue um, in New York and across the country. That can that can uh, feed into other behavioral issues as well, or enhance behavioral issues. Yeah, that's a great point. One of the things I talk with my students uh, at the college about is we know more about PTSD than I think we ever did before, uh, whether it's from veterans or or patients I see who have gone through some pretty severe trauma, and there are actually protein bits called dendritic spines in the memory bank that can be triggered usually by one of the five senses um, and bring back this flood of memories that you thought you had dealt with or stuffed down. And so often, I think in the addiction field, I'm seeing this push more and more with the heroin crisis and overdoses and we've really become an addicted society in so many ways. I think a lot of it traces back to these traumatic events that are then triggered by one of the five senses, so it's interesting that you would bring that up. Yeah, I completely agree with you, and um, you know, as you know, the science uh, talks about that prefrontal cortex, the thinking center, um, which is really underactivated when trauma has occurred, and the you know the amygdala, the fear center, is overacted when trauma has occurred, and so that leaves the students in a um, in a state that's most often in survival mode as opposed to cognition mode, which allows them to learn. So when they are in the classroom, any of these triggers that you are sort of referring to can set them off and, and release that cortisol and whatever the, you know, whatever that physical response is to result in not only not being able to learn effectively, but potentially uh, display behavioral issues. Sure, yeah, and I think, like you said, just having uh, teachers aware and educated about not only how to recognize that, but how to be uh, empathetic when those things happen, too. But, but just education and, and recognizing that is so important as well. Um, I was interested when you said, so do you, is part of your job, you talk about prevention, but you get involved when adolescents have some kind of disciplinary problems or legal problems, and are there, are there bigger issues that are coming up, or is it kind of the same old things, cycles of things that get young people in trouble? 
Well, I think there are, there are several issues for sure. We do get we do get involved, and as uh, as you may know, the traditional approach to punishment really doesn't work. It's been shown not to work. So, so when school rules are quote unquote broken, um, you're focusing on establishing guilt and punishment and pushing kids out of the school setting, as opposed to a restorative approach. Which would, um, which really defines it as people in relationships that are being harmed, and setting accountability and accountability structure, where the student who has displayed the behavior understands the impact of it, and works toward repairing that harm. So instead of being pushed out of the school setting. Uh, for X number of days or whatever it may be, and then coming back with nothing addressed, they are, um, you know, we're, move, we're moving down more toward the path of a restorative approach where the, you know, the, the, the student who has displayed the behavior and the victim and others as part of the community can come together and really talk about what the impact has been uh, some some strat develop some strategies to repair that harm and to uh, move forward and, and be able to uh, learn in an effective environment. Yeah, that's uh, when I was on the uh, DASA committee. Restorative justice was something that was really gaining traction, and I saw a lot of districts. Well, honestly, I saw a lot of districts talking about it. We were having meetings about it. Sometimes I get a little frustrated being outside of the system of the answer, if you want to call it that, is we're going to set up a committee and we're going to have a meeting about it. Uh, there were times for me on, on the DASA committee as a parent, I said, okay, we've had a number of meetings. We've talked about this. Are we going to start implementing this now? Are you seeing uh, districts that have actually moved forward and implemented restorative justice? Because it's, it sounds like a great approach. Don't just isolate or shun the child that just gives those negative messages again to the, to the uh, adolescent who's gotten into trouble. But are you seeing districts embrace that? We are. We're starting to see more and more districts embracing that approach. Um, in fact, you know, I didn't really talk about one of, the, one of the biggest things that our office has done is about six years ago we created what we uh, call regional youth justice teams. And those are multidisciplinary teams that are um, uh, across New York State. Uh, there are nine of them total, but they cover every single county in the state. And, and the, the idea of those teams is to come together from all the various different disciplines, whether it's schools or probation or law enforcement or community-based organizations, even youths and families, uh, social services, etc., come together and figure out how can we address uh, these issues together um, to, to, to resolve them. And, and, and I bring that up because we gave a round of grants to those teams uh, initially back in 2015, it may have been. And the, the team out of Western New York came up with this really great idea of taking a restorative practices train the trainer uh, model uh, by Dr. Tom Cavanaugh out of Colorado State University bringing him in to do a four-day train-the-trainer for five key teams in, in the Western region. And, you know, the results have been phenomenal so far. Mm -hmm. um, they, those teams have really blossomed. 
and they, they, they worked out so well that we have brought back Dr. Cavanaugh uh, several more times to work with some of the other regional teams and then have partnered with State Ed and the New York State School Boards Association last year to train 25 teams of two, a BOCES, you know, a BOCES professional and a component school district professional to really start to ingrain this into the school setting. So it's really, it really is starting to take off. Yeah. And we're, you know, we're continuing to build on those efforts. Oh, that's wonderful. I'm glad to hear that. Because from, from the counseling perspective, I mean, something that I've always believed and kind of put forward in my work, especially with adolescents, is the idea that hurt people hurt people. So if you have these young people that are acting out either physically or, you know, in the words they say if they're bullying, although that term has gotten to be many different things, to just punish them, expel them, put them out of school, I think they just start to internalize those messages, but you haven't taught them any skills, like you've said. Absolutely. You know, and I really think restorative justice has, um, has a lot of potential. I know one of the things I hear from teachers uh, quite a bit when I've gone in to interact or talk with them is, yes, this is wonderful, but where do we get the training or how do we find the time? And I don't think that's something you or I could fix. It's just something I do recognize in terms of how do we get them there? Yeah, it's not something we can fix per se, but we can go down the path of uh, figuring out how to offer trainings more and how to uh, take those successful experiences and illustrate those in the field. And that's, that's one of the things that we've been trying to do as well. Um, you know, we've worked, and we, we work not only in restorative practices, but you mentioned other effective interventions, right? teaching kids, right, how to behave. We teach them math, we teach them science, we teach them English, but we expect them to learn how to behave all on their own, which is not, you know, which is, which is counterintuitive really, right? So you just push a kid out, um, you're right, they do, they, they do become more and more alienated, and then they act out more. Sure. Um, if we take the time to, to step back and, and, and try to, teach them how to behave really based on their particular needs and it you know and you can do a really a deep dive on all of this stuff but there there are different needs that kids have and there are tools that you can use to figure out what those particular needs are and and put forth the appropriate intervention for that youth so you know you could have two youth who are who have displayed the same identical behavior, but if their needs are different and they respond differently, then the intervention may be different as right. well. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and I think uh, in the work I do as a substance abuse counselor in particular, I've gotten used to dealing with an audience or patients by and large who don't want to be there. When I started doing this work, I thought, oh, this is wonderful. I'm in recovery myself. I thought, oh, people will, you know, see the problems addiction caused, and they'll go, yes, I'm finally, I'm getting some help. And then the clients I were meeting were saying, I don't have a problem. I just want my license back. I just want probation off my back. I just want my significant other, you know, to uh, let me back in the house. And particularly with young people, uh, they were there. They saw treatment as a form of getting in trouble. 
So treatment equals trouble. And it was interesting when I was thinking about this, because I have kids that are 16 and 18 now, and I was looking at this concept of safety in schools, uh, and I said to them, besides the gun issue, and besides the, those types of safety, what do you see as the biggest issues? And we came around to them saying they felt unsafe or they could identify with when students felt unsafe with the language that instructors and teachers are using toward that student who's not getting it, toward that student who's acting out, who simply doesn't know the behaviors because they probably haven't been modeled them or taught them. So I think when I hear you talk, whether it's restorative justice or teaching interventions, I mean, my hat is off to every teacher out there. I know it's an extremely difficult job. I did not know until I got in the classroom how much of it would just be classroom management. But, but identifying that that student, you know, not personalizing those behaviors, but also not adding to the problem because of your frustration or because of, of they're not getting this curriculum. It goes back to the empathy, I think, that you're talking about. But to, to hear my kids say that almost was an unsafe thing in the classroom or a very uncomfortable thing, that was powerful to me. Yeah, and you have to remember that when an adult raises their voice or they interact in a certain way with the, with the child, that could be triggering in and of itself. And on the other angle, you know, on the, with the other angle of it, uh, there are a lot of adults who have been through childhood traumatic experiences who have never dealt with those experiences either. Mm. And so they're, you know, they could be being triggered as well when something starts to escalate yeah. and really respond in a manner that is not going to help the situation. It might escalate the situation. When you think about the adverse childhood experiences study that was done in the 90s, um, you know, the, the study that asked, you know, uh, adults who, you know, whether they experienced one of 10 adverse experiences when they were growing up before the age of 18, sexual abuse, physical abuse, um, an incarcerated household member, they lost a parent, they had a substance abuse in the house, or their mother was treated violently, and the, and the, the results that those, that occurs from those, you know, really in physical health, but really in behavioral health as well, the numbers are overwhelming. You know, there were only about a third of the respondents who had zero adverse childhood experiences. Wow. And there were 12.5% that had four or more. So when you take a look at the adults in the system, mm -hmm. and, you know, a lot of these numbers have been replicated in, you know, there is a, partic a particular New York-based study that the Department of Health did, and there have been various other studies that have occurred um, subsequent to that original one. Uh, the issue is there, it's prevalent, it's amongst adults across the board in all the various professions that are out there, including education. And if those are not addressed as well, then there's the potential for that escalation to continue. Um, so, so really teaching the adults those strategies on uh, how to handle things differently is going to make a safer classroom for the kids and the adults and, and the community overall. 
Oh, absolutely, yeah, and that's, uh, as I train counselors to get into the substance abuse field, more and more and more as the population gets, I don't want to say sicker, it might just be that we're recognizing issues we didn't before. I mean, addiction is a mental health issue, but we see more and more of our patients who have other mental health issues, be it depression or anxiety or something else that's going on. I always train these counselors, self-care, taking care of themselves is so important. You know, if your house isn't in order, how are you going to give something away to uh, your patient? And I think with teachers and, and just across the board with adults, what you just said there, um, we could all use therapy, right? It couldn't <laughs> hurt for anybody yeah. to, to meet with a counselor and say, Oh, this is what I'm dealing with, and yet we live, I believe, in a society in doing this work. Addiction is stigmatized. Uh, there definitely is a taboo. Mental health issues are still stigmatized. Um, and so we live in this society that says, well, there's something wrong with getting help for those kind of issues, and yet we feed it with all these other behaviors, many of which I see come out in addiction. I had a seventh grade teacher who I just idolized. He was a track coach and he was a wonderful guy. And he used to talk about martinis all the time. I had no idea what a martini was, but he'd say, oh, I can't wait till this weekend's gonna be a three martini weekend and we have a two martini test coming up. And I, and I don't blame him for using that language, but it really modeled for me, oh, the martini is, is the way. That is how we start to, uh, deal with life and medicate these issues. So I think in those ways, getting that message across to educators about taking care of themselves and, and the mental health piece and, and recognizing things in your past that maybe you didn't deal with yet, because it doesn't go away. I see that with patients all the time who had some kind of trauma or even a loss, a relationship loss or a death loss, and they haven't dealt with it, and it's still there five, 10, 15 years later. So. That's a great point. Yeah, and the other issue that we haven't really touched upon yet, you know, um, you know, you talked about uh, a little bit, you know, why do kids hurt people, hurt people? Why do kids act out in a certain way? Um, there's also the other angle of how is our system set up, right? And 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 how are we dealing with issues that are less about behavior and more about our implicit biases? Right. So when you take a look at uh, the system, there have been a lot of studies done on this. Um, how are we treating uh, African-American youth versus white youth or Hispanic youth or, or whatever, um, whatever race or ethnicity they are? Um, there, there's one particular study that, that showed that preschool teachers tended to observe uh, black youth much more closely than white youth. So if they're each acting out at the same rate, but you're observing one group over the other, right. then who's gonna get in trouble more? Um, yeah. And that and that plays out in, in a lot of the numbers that you see. Um, you know, even looking at, in New York City, they, they took a look at disproportionate suspensions and arrests, which really, you know, those lead to terrible outcomes down the road. Right. Um, and, you know, and, and when they took a look at in New York City schools in 2012, the enrollment for black students was about 28%. Um, 
but blacks represented almost 53% of students who were suspended and 62.5% of students who were arrested. Hmm. So you take a look at those numbers and you see the disproportionality and you kind of have to question to yourself, you know, what's what's causing that? What's happening there? Is it that they are really, um, you know, have much more behavioral issues, right? Or is there a structural um, problem with the with the way that we're handling that? And and there was a there was another study that sort of took a look at um, what white students were referred. Um, more for in terms of behavioral issues and they were things like smoking and vandalism and obscene language and leaving without permission and black students were referred more for disrespect excessive noise threat and loitering wow. so you take a look at the discretion that goes into a lot of these decisions and you know um, purposefully or not there are decisions being made that result in one group being handled differently than another. And so we, we have to take a look uh, a lot deeper into those issues as well as, you know, what are the issues that the youth are engaging in behavior-wise. Sure. Yeah, one of the, uh, it's one of the uh, more controversial classes that we teach at Hudson Valley in our curriculum is cultural competencies. Mm-hmm. And there are always classes where um, they really, I think the purpose of the class is to make you look in a mirror and look at your own biases and look at your own stereotypes and look at how you were raised and how that's influencing your decisions. Because when you work in a field, whether it's educating or counseling or dealing with people, that's really important for you to be gut level honest with that. And a lot of our students don't want to look at that sometimes. Um, it's very interesting. Yeah, and I think, uh, to be honest, a lot of adults don't want to look at those issues either. Absolutely. I mean, we had, um, you know, we were fortunate enough, we're fortunate enough at DCJS to have a, a commissioner who is very um, interested in, in the issue of implicit bias and cultural competency. And, you know, we brought in an expert from Morehouse University, Dr. Brian Marks, to train our entire staff, 400 plus um, staff, in implicit bias and how to recognize it, and you know, and, and sort of what to do about it, and you know, there there were naysayers in the room for sure. Yeah. Um, you know, but the the goal and the hope is that people will take an honest look at how they are responding to these issues as well and be able to start to develop that understanding and, and, and develop some skills to make sure that they are not acting upon those implicit biases, which are, which, which are natural. Sure. The implicit biases occur based on the way that the brain responds to situations and your culture and how you're brought up and all those sorts of things, but but we have to be aware, become more aware of those biases, so that we can, so that we can act in an appropriate manner. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's a great point. And do you think that there is a, uh, in terms of educating staff, um, there is something uh, uh, that they need to learn about other cultures? I mean, 
we live in upstate New York, and I know in the Saratoga district, there is not a lot of diversity. Uh, Hudson Valley and Troy, there's more. My daughter is heading to Boston University next year. One of the things I noticed right away was the diversity of people, which I really wanted to get her exposed to. But do you think sometimes it's a matter of just misinterpreting culture? I mean, was that something that was in the training? Um, I'm not sure if it's a, a matter of misinterpreting culture so much as um, the, the way that the brain processes uh, responses and not being exposed to the different cultures right. um, or only being exposed to particular cultures in a negative manner. So for example, when you have um, police who are, uh, who are patrolling a particular neighborhood um, and it's in a neighborhood that they don't live in. So let's say they, they live in a suburban area there, you know, the, it's preliminarily, you know, a white area, but they are patrolling a uh, difficult neighborhood in a predominantly African American area, and and the the individuals that they are encountering typically are the ones who are in trouble because they are, um, they're 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 looking for individuals who are not uh, doing things they're supposed to be doing. So so those kinds of experiences then start to get ingrained in that officer's mind and that brain. So then when they come across an African-American person in another context, mm -hmm. th those sorts of issues pop into that officer's mind right. instead of, hey, wait a minute, now this is where I patrol and of course I'm looking for criminal activity in the area that I patrol in um, that doesn't mean that this individual that I come into contact with, wherever they are, is a criminal. Right. Um, but the brain is processing in that manner. So they. So so it's really an issue of awareness and the ability to um, to take a look at individuals in an objective manner. Yeah. No, that's well said, and, and I'm glad I see more of a push for that word, for just awareness yeah. of, of where you're coming from and how you're viewing this and what your perspective and paradigm is uh, on the situation. Yeah, and you talk about some areas of the state, you know, that may be, they, they may not be diverse at all in the areas of race and ethnicity, but then you, you do have issues of... Um, you know, rich and poor, or LGBTQ youth, yes. or um, other other types of uh, scenarios that that could play into implicit biases as well. Girls versus boys, gender specific stuff. You know, yes, all that. Yes. All that. And that was something. It's interesting you mentioned uh, in terms of um, financial situation. That was something we noticed in the Saratoga district right away was from elementary school, it would be send in $10 everybody because our kids are getting a t-shirt for the class. Yeah. And I immediately said, well, what about the family that doesn't have that? Right. What are we doing with that? And, and the feedback I've gotten from my kids uh, is that some of the biggest uh, pushback um, 
and teasing that goes on and bullying is what it goes is what it feeds into is between the haves and the have-nots and I think that can go across what we're talking about cultures and backgrounds and things too so depending on the district where that can go and, and we haven't touched on the uh, LGBTQ community either but that that was another uh, thing that I found out from a young age we were lucky that in our family you know this was recognized um, that there was something going on it seemed to be with gender identity or sexuality we went to the school right away we had a fairly responsive um, administration which was good and we really appreciated that right from right from the get-go but one of the things we've tried to do uh, is be very present in the school so my wife has been the school parent, I have been a coach, I go in and talk about, I volunteer to go in and talk about addiction and character ed things because I wanted us to be seen and I wanted to know not just the administration and the teachers but I wanted to know the kids too because I think sometimes there is a uh, tendency to, to say well that family is an outlier and, and that's why this behavior is them and they and that goes down the road to kind of um, misunderstanding of those issues. Yeah, I mean, I think it's all about, you know, again, it comes down to acceptance and relationships and empathy. Um, people are different. Yeah. And so, you know, and everybody wants to have a sense of belonging and acceptance. And, you know, I think as adults, we need to foster that however, however we're able to do that. And, and I think if we do those things, and we do them effectively, it will result in safer schools. Absolutely. Um, yes, and, and, and the other thing we found, which is interesting to me, I think sometimes the questions that come up are just out of curiosity when it comes to gender identity or sexuality. I don't think they're meant to be harmful, um, but you know, pronouns are a big, huge deal mm -hmm. uh, to the transgender community. and. We were telling elementary teachers from a very young age, can you not do the girls in this line, boys in this line? We were getting lists in the summer of girls bring this in and boys bring this in. Yeah. Well, why are we putting everyone in these binaries that belong? And once we said it to the school or the teachers, there was a response that said, oh, we could do that differently. So I think some of the uh, answers are very simple things, but, but they, you have to have an open dialogue and communication about these things and, and you need to get people in there. Again, it comes down to training and finding the time to educate the educators. Yeah, and I think it, I think it also takes leadership, right? So, you, you know, you need, you need a strong leader. You know, you can, talk about, um, you can talk about these things to staff and faculty all you want, um, but, but what you really need is somebody that is going to step up and lead to develop the parameters of the structure that you really want to put in place and, and, to, and to drive the solution. Mm. And you know, I, I think you can engage all of the staff and all of the faculty and the youth and the community members and all of that, but, um, but, but, but I think a, a leadership component is, is critical yeah, that's to developing point. something like that. Yeah, that, that's really a good point. And, and so do you mean by that with leadership that if, that if something's not being followed, I'm thinking of 
this was a horrible experience I had when I was just a student teacher and I was going into this classroom every day. I won't say what district it was, but I was going into a classroom every day of a uh, teacher who had been there for a long, long time on the verge of retirement, and he would say to this student, you look like a girl. He was a male student. and would make fun of the haircut and would do the things. Um, at that point, with the right leadership, is there some corrective action? Is there, I mean, I think it should be. I think you know. There, I think there certainly should be some corrective action for a situation like that. I mean, for an adult to do that to a student is very, very difficult. And I'll give you know. I'll give my own example. I you know. I, I, as I think I mentioned earlier, I grew up in a, a chaotic household. I experienced trauma, and I had a teacher. I remember who. Um, saw me act out you know I, I I kind of acted out as a as a response to the chaos and trauma that was going on in my life and but I was very smart at the same time and I did well in school and I remember my Italian teacher who basically said after the first quiz of the year which I got a hundred in um, who did you cheat off of oh. And, and I said, what are you talking about? Who did I cheat off of? Um, you know, and it was because she had made a, uh, she, she'd made a judgment on me mm -hmm. because of my demeanor, um, and which had nothing to do with, with my ability, my, my intelligence. Right. And, you know, it, it really set me back. It, yeah. it, 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 it was very difficult for me to, to hear something like that. And alternatively, I had become um, acquaintances with the other Italian teacher who was in the school, who I, who I really, you know, for some reason I, I connected with. And, and I told him the story and he said to me, well, why don't you skip the first year of Italian come into my class into Italian two, and I'll spend you know the next three or four weeks with you after school to get you up to speed. And he wow. said that because he knew I had taken French, so I had the I had the base for foreign language, okay. and you know and 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 he thought that I would be able to do that. And so that was you know that that's the type of trauma informed response that is very effective mm. with students. And that made me feel valued. It made me feel like I had something to offer. It made me feel like, um, you know, that, 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 I could, that I could do that and be successful. And I know that it impacted the way that I was acting in his classroom. There was, you know, there was, there was no way I was going to act out in his classroom after he had afforded me this opportunity right. and, you know, and, and dealt with me with a level of empathy and respect that I hadn't experienced with the other teacher. Um, so point. it's really, really important to just shift the mindset, um, you know, amongst the adults as well. Yes. Now that's powerful. And I think uh, one of the big tools I've found as a helper um, and an educator is our language. Language is so powerful. I, I grew up in the era of sticks and stones can break my bones, but words can never hurt me. And that was 
awful message (laughs) because words can hurt more than anything else. And I think educators have a responsibility for every word they say. If if after the hundred day you had heard, wow, great job, you must have really studied on this, it's a whole different course that you take, right? Exactly, and it's a simple shift. You know, people think like, well, I don't want to do classroom management and it's you know, it's taken up all of my time and all of that. Um, one simple sentence, sure. one simple shift in language could alter the course of the classroom dynamic. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, and, and those are two individuals who approached it completely differently. And one, you know, the, the one that I, you know, that offered to, to help me, I'm still in touch with to this day. Wow. Um, and, you know, he has been an amazing uh, teacher for many, many students because I see the, the amount of respect and, uh, and, and all of that that he has gotten over the years in, in all of the students that he has taught. Sure. And I haven't heard the other one's name at all. <laughs> so, so. <laughs> and you would think that at the heart of every teacher or educator, there is that helper. There is that person who got into this field. It's not, as we like to say in counseling, it's not for the income. It's for the outcome. We do make a living. Um, yeah. But yeah, just learning the tools, like you said. And, and I, I'm going back to that thing you said about leadership. I know. One of the things we found on the DASA committee within our district pretty quickly was that my kids in elementary school were following one character education program, where at another elementary they were doing their own different thing. And when they got to middle school, now it's a PBIS and it's a different thing. And we said, whoa, 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 whoa. We need to have from kindergarten to 12th grade, no matter how big your district is, the same character education programs because repetition is important. And so what we came down to, and you just used the word, let's say one month is the month of respect. Well, it's gonna be respect in all that month is September, respect across the district, and then you can bring back behaviors and language to is that respectful is what you just said. And I think those things reinforce safety as well, but it's, it's got to be character education across the district because I know in treating substance abuse or, or in therapy or just in learning life skills for, for young people, they need repetition. They need to hear it again and again. And how the adults in their lives act is going to mean far more than what they say. You know, are you walking the walk or just talking the talk? But I like the idea of character ed across districts from day one of school till the day you graduate. And it's got to be enforced with strong leadership. That's what yeah, and I think uh, along those lines, um, there needs to be an, a unified, organized plan district-wide, not only for character education, but really for everything. Because when you take a look at it, and you, you know, we, we look at some of these issues, and, and we were talking um, uh, you know, before, the, before this uh, podcast started, is that, you know, yeah, you have to address the issues related to the kids who have already gotten themselves in trouble. But you have to take a look back and look at the prevention angle and everything in between. And it, it's going to seem overwhelming to try to tackle everything at once. But if you have that leadership in place who can um, sort of guide maybe teams of people to work on different components or segments, as I like to call them, 
do a deep dive into those segments, put some uh, effective responses in place, and then as the leader, figure out how do we link all of that stuff together to make a district-wide effective behavioral response uh, yeah. across the board where, where the decisions are and, they, and the responses are consistent, they're effective, um, they're equitable, and all of those things. Yeah, that's a great point, and it, it, I guess it brings us back to, so for prevention character ed, but it brings us back to when there are issues that come up, is everyone practicing restorative justice? Are we all on the same page with those things as well? And um, one of the things I heard you say it just there, that I found from the moment I started uh, student teaching was that the the young people who seem to have the most chaos and, and dysfunction going on at home were the ones who were in school every day because they needed consistency. They needed a safe environment. They really were leaning into that more than the students who maybe didn't have those issues and problems going on at home. So I think it's really important for educators to recognize that too, that consistency and you're safe in this classroom and I'm going to use language and behaviors that support you and care for you is, is just, just vital. Yeah, and I think also to be fair to the, um, to be fair to the educators and the adults in the school setting, um, we really have to take a look outside of those disciplines sure. and figure out how do we bring everyone together, not point fingers, right? We can't point the fingers at the educators, we can't point the fingers at law enforcement, we can't point the finger at any particular discipline. But what we do need to do is come together as, as professionals from multiple disciplines and figure out how do we come up with a solution together. Right. And you know, one of the, one of the things that I um, am so appreciative of when I walked in the door um, to the position I'm in now in, you know, in late 2011, there was a, a model or a sort of a, some guidelines that were, that were called collective impact. And we took a collective impact structure um, to basically put these solutions into place for the juvenile justice system overall. And collective impact is basically what it is is the commitment of a group of actors from different sectors to a common agenda for trying to solve a complex social problem. Mm. And you know, there are five basic elements for that, um, and it includes a common agenda, right? What do we want to try to do? We want to try to address behavioral needs of students. Uh, it, it has shared measurement in there. How are we going to actually take a look at the data right. to, um, you know, to, to, to define how we're how we're doing along the way um, it it has mutually reinforcing activities so there are differential approach approaches and coordination through like a joint plan of action uh, continuous communication because communication is key yeah. and there needs to be a constant feedback loop and then really backbone support of you know who's going to back this right you know, who could it be could it be state ed could it be BOCES could it be the school district itself could it be the community um, how are we going to come together and work toward these solutions and, and collective impact for me was a you know was really a wonderful approach um, 
to try to implement some of the changes that we were able to do in the juvenile justice system. And I think it could work very well with, with, uh, with this issue as well. Oh, it sounds like it's got a lot of potential because I agree with you. This is a complex issue, and there's not there's no quick fix. There's not if we just get those people straightened out, or if you just do one thing, then it's going to uh, resolve itself. But I think uh, absolutely that sounds that sounds like a good start. Yeah, and I think you know I think state ed is certainly heading in the right direction. Um, you know, they, they issued recently new guidance and resources for social-emotional learning. Um, they've been very, very um, supportive, and they've, you know, and, have, and like I mentioned, we have partnered with them on restorative practices. Um, so, the, you know, as, as a leadership agency, I think they're moving in, in the right direction along these lines, and I think we really just need to continue to leverage that. Want to just do a quick like thanks for having the conversation like close up just to end the show sure well uh wow it's been great talking with you today tom it's really given me a lot to think about and um this has this has been a good discussion i hope that we continue it yeah i absolutely agree and it was great speaking with you as well so much appreciated great thank you all right <laughs>